You're listening to Unhooked. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ash Butters. Ash is a well-being mentor and the creator and host of Behind the Smile, a recovery podcast designed to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma, and addiction. After making the decision to get sober in 2020, Ash set out on a mission, quitting her corporate job and diving deeply into the world of self-development and recovery. Her mission is to smash through the stereotype that surrounds addiction and to help people live a fulfilled life connected to their purpose. In this episode, Ash is going to take us on a personal journey into the depths of her own struggle with addiction. We delve into the topics of codependency, what approval sucking looks like and how to stop people pleasing, the importance of authenticity and the healing that comes from honest relationships, and finally, the heavy issue of shame and its role in addiction. So, get ready to be inspired, enlightened, and moved as we embark on this episode of the Unhooked Podcast. One, two, three, four. Hi, I'm Jeremy Lipkowitz, and with over 12 years of meditation experience as a mindfulness trainer and coach for high performers, I've become obsessed with helping people break free from compulsive, unhealthy behaviors and addictions and step into a life of true freedom so that they can finally become their best selves and cultivate deeper and lasting fulfillment. I've created Unhooked, the Breaking Porn Addiction Podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to master your mind and optimize your life. This is Unhooked. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Unhooked. I'm your host, Jeremy Lipkowitz, and I'm happy to be joined today by Ash Butters. Ash, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm excited to dive into some of your story and in particular, some of the practices and the tools that you use for recovery. Um, So first, I want to start off, you know, I know that your podcast is named Behind the Smile. And I think that's Mm. just such an interesting name for a podcast. And I can guess kind of what it's about, but I'd love to hear what's the story behind the name. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to share that with you. So, Jeremy, I came up with the idea for Behind the Smile after I had gotten into recovery myself. So for many, many years, I had an extremely unhealthy relationship primarily with alcohol and drugs. But one would argue that that flowed into all areas of my life, including my work life, my intimate relationships. It was all pretty chaotic as a result of that. And the really interesting thing was, was that throughout the two decades of heavy drinking and using, I used almost like a facade give off the impression that everything in my life was okay. And the way that I did that was to smile. And I would hide behind this smile and I would be so convincing at making everybody around me think that I was okay, that really, even up until the day I went into rehab, people had no idea what was truly going on. And then when I got into rehab, there was a process that we were taken through where we had to read out what's called a timeline out to the rest of our primary group. And I remember getting up to do this activity and I had to recall any major incidents that had occurred within my life from the age of zero to 17. 
And I remember I got up there and because I'm a type A perfectionist, I had used highlighters and rulers and it was all color coded. And I got up like I was presenting, you know, my grade six project. And at the end of that presentation, I'm saying in air quotes, at the end of that process, I should say, what it really was, the primary therapist looked at me and she said, Ash, I don't know if you're aware, but you smiled throughout that entire hour. And she was really quite concerned because number one, what it highlighted was the level of disassociation that I had to my reality and my experience. But not only that, I didn't know I was doing it. And of course, we know that to be able to change a habit, we have to be aware first and foremost that we're even doing it. But because I had used this smile as like a shield of armor, as a coping mechanism throughout my entire life, it was just my absolute default. And so I came up with this idea of behind the smile because the mission with my podcast is to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma, and addiction. And I truly believe the only way we can do that is by having really honest, open conversations about our reality. And that's something that I was incapable of doing for so long because I was so afraid to let anybody around me really know what was going on. So I'm just encouraging people to be able to literally step out from behind their smile and in doing so, step into their truth. And I know for me, once I was able to do that, that's really where I started to unlock my life and start to design a life that I wanted to actually participate in rather than being stuck in a life that I was constantly trying to escape from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really love that. And I think that's why the name resonated so much with me. And I think with a lot of the listeners, for those of us who are, you know, have struggled with porn addiction, there's, we hide behind this perfectionism, like high functioning adults, professionals, we're in the workplace, we're getting shit done. But then we have this secret life that we want to hide from everyone. We don't want anyone to see that we're doing things behind closed doors. Mm. And just like you say, I think, you know, getting out of that facade and showing up and being vulnerable and being real mm. is such an important step. Um, yeah. And I think that the problem is, no matter what the addiction I truly believe, there's this stigma around addiction, which I think is just so archaic. You know, my own personal story, Jeremy, I have a father who's in recovery. And by the time I got sober, he'd been in recovery for 10 years. And yet, despite having evidence right in front of me that an alcoholic didn't have to be the person under the bridge drinking spirits out of a brown paper bag, like my dad was an alcoholic, I still didn't think that I qualified. And I mm. still didn't think that I could possibly have an addiction because if you looked at my life from the outside, like I was saying, I was ticking all of life's boxes. I had the high-flying career. I was married. I owned my own home. Like I was so good at making sure everything looked okay. But the reality was on the inside, it was really, really dark and really, really bleak. Yeah. What was the, the wake-up call for you? I imagine there was a moment, maybe like a rock-bottom moment that was a wake-up call that, hey, I can't keep doing it like this. Hmm. It was interesting because for many years, I would blame everyone else but myself for my drinking and the consequences that came as a result of my behavior when I was drinking or using. And so 
I had gotten to a point where I had convinced myself that it was my husband's fault. For a little bit of context, my ex-husband was an addict. He's also in recovery now. But at the time that we were married, he was smoking a lot of weed and I was drinking a lot. And we had actually experienced the death of a family member right before our wedding. And what that did was rather than us being able to process that grief and really grow together, we kind of both went into our own addictions. And essentially we became like two physical beings living under the one roof, but we were soulless. We were empty. There was no connection there. And so rather than really fostering and developing this beautiful relationship and this beautiful marriage, we actually fostered and developed the relationships with our own addictions. And so as a result of that, I would continue to blame him for my drinking. And I had convinced myself that if he would just stop smoking weed, then I wouldn't feel so alone and disconnected and that I would stop drinking. Anyway, fast forward to the beginning of 2020. We'd been traveling at the beginning of that year. We'd gone over to America. We'd been skiing and it was really, it really wasn't good. Our relationship was in a really dark place. And I did think that it looked like we were going to get separated. And so my ex-husband decided to go to India and he was going to go on a silent meditation retreat, number one, to, to stop smoking, but also to try and find a solution. And I thought, fantastic, this is great because once you leave the country, then I'll prove to you and everybody else that there's nothing wrong with me and I'll go back to having a healthy relationship with alcohol. Well, you can imagine what happened. I think it only took five days but he'd been gone for, and I had been drinking every single day, just as I had before. And it got to the Friday evening. And funnily enough, Jeremy, I was actually down in Melbourne, which is where I live now. But at the time I was living in Sydney and I'd come down to Melbourne for a work trip. And I decided to stay the weekend because Melbourne's my hometown and I wanted to catch up with some friends. And I remember on the Friday night being invited to work drinks. I worked for a big, big uh, beauty company. And I made the decision not to go because by that time, my relationship with alcohol was at a place where I couldn't guarantee my behavior once I started drinking. And I didn't want to embarrass myself because of course, hiding behind a smile, everything's okay. I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of my colleagues. So I went home, I picked up a bottle of wine on the way home and I had a couple of glasses. I was staying with my mum. And then a friend called and said, would you like to catch up for a drink? And I thought, yeah, sure, I can go out for one drink. And honestly, I truly hand on heart believed that I was just going out for one drink. But that wasn't the case. The reality was I ended up staying out all night, doing a lot more than just drinking. And I ended up walking through the door of my mother's house at about nine o'clock the next morning. And I remember she was sitting there at the kitchen table and just the look on her face, it's so hard to describe. In that moment, my heart just broke and it was like I had this realization finally that I was the problem and mm. that unless I was willing to change, nothing was going to change and I could not live another day on this earth stuck in that hamster wheel of addiction, breaking promises to myself every single day, feeling the guilt, shame, and remorse. Like I just couldn't do it. I was broken. And that was the moment that I said, I'm done. I need help. 
Mm, that's beautiful. I mean, heartbreaking and beautiful. I mean, it's, and I think probably every addict in recovery knows that feeling of, of heartbreaking and beautiful. It's like that moment mm. that is both our rock bottom, but it's also the start of, of a journey of healing. That moment when yeah. you finally recognize how bad it's gotten. And it's really interesting, isn't it? Because that particular story, like I'm telling you, Jeremy, I had nights, weekends that were way worse than that in my history of drinking and using. But for some reason, the stars aligned in that moment. It was almost like a spiritual experience where I just knew that I'd had enough. And I really believe that I was gifted the gift of desperation in that moment. And that was the driving force where I was then ready to step into recovery without any sort of questioning, any defense. Like I fully surrendered in that moment and I was willing to do whatever it would take to be able to clean up my life because I just, I was no longer living in congruence with my values. I was somebody that I didn't recognize. When I looked in the mirror, I didn't respect or love the woman that looked back. And I just knew that I had so much more to give and so much more to offer. But until I removed these things that were blocking me, I was never going to get there. Gosh, there's there's so much beautiful I want to highlight. Like I want to take out a highlighter and just run over the a few things I just want to just want to highlight the gift of desperation, which is so beautiful. It's like that it really is a gift to get to that rock bottom moment or that desperation where you have to reassess how you're mm. living. And then what was the, the next thing you said? Ah, oh, man, I should have highlighted it sooner. <laughs> there was something else that was just, that was so, oh, like, you know, you said like, you knew you had more to offer the world. And that is something I hear from so many of my clients and something I knew for myself. It's like, when you realize that you are not reaching your full potential and you have so much more to offer the world and so much more that you can be, mm. and that this addiction is really the thing that's holding you back from living your highest purpose, reaching your full potential, it's interesting that that's one of the real pains of addiction is that it holds you back from your full potential. Absolutely. And without you even knowing it, like I had become so used to waking up every day, feeling hungover, feeling unmotivated with unhealthy relationships in my life. Like that was just my normal. And I had become accustomed to it to the point where I didn't even question it. And I always you know, it still gives me goosebumps to reflect back now on how far my life or how much has changed in such a short amount of time. I've been sober a little over three and a half years. And if you had told me in those early months that even one of the many things that has happened was going to happen, I probably wouldn't have be believed you. It was almost like, God, the universe had this greater plan for me. And I kind of kept getting in the way. And then when I was able to just step aside and hand it over, like all of a sudden things just started to tick into place. Like at one year sober, I did end up leaving my marriage and that was a really amicable experience, which I don't think would have happened if we'd both still been drinking and using. I moved back to my hometown of Melbourne. At two years sober, I retrained as a yoga and a meditation teacher. I left the corporate world. I started my podcast. Like none of this was in my grand plan or design for living when I was drinking and drugging. Like it just wasn't. I just, I had no idea what my potential even was. But 
in the process of removing alcohol, in the process of removing drugs, and then anything else that I started to look at, because I was still trying to find things, even to this day, to try and numb the edges of life, because life can be really painful and life can be really uncomfortable. And as somebody who has lived with addiction, it's my natural tendency to want to find things to numb the edges. But I'm a lot more mindful of that today. And I try to really, I try to sit in the shit. I try to get comfortable being uncomfortable because I know that that's where the growth is. And when I'm able to lean into growth or lean into fear or lean into uncomfortability, then life really starts to reveal itself to me. So I always know in moments of pain, that there's going to be progress through it, but it's just about, I suppose, rewiring those neural pathways and knowing like at the end of the day, a feeling can't kill me. You know, going back to those addictive behaviors and patterns, that might, that very well might, but a feeling is never going to kill me and this too shall pass. It's a mantra that I, I bring up to the forefront of my mind whenever I'm in a moment of emotional pain. Yeah, it's a beautiful mantra and and I think there's so many universal truths with, with all of, you know, any way that addiction manifests. But one of the ones you're pointing out is just this running away from discomfort and the ways mm. that we don't want to sit with a feeling, whether it's a feeling mm. of, of irritation with our partner or a feeling of stress about work and all the ways that we run away from these discomforts and into the quote unquote safety of the addiction. Mm. I'm curious, were there any books that had really big impacts on you in your recovery? You know, things that taught you important lessons or, or just had an impact on you? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first books that I read in rehab, actually, was The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And I remember reading that book and just having light bulb moment after light bulb moment and really, it's about what we were just talking about there. It's that, you know, emotion is energy in motion. And if we don't allow these emotions to be processed through the body and we need to feel it to heal it, then they stay stuck in the body. And my experience has been that if I don't process an emotion, then it either becomes blocked and, and I become disconnected or even worse, it will come out at a time when I don't want it to. And that might look like anxiety. It might look like depression. It might look like an unnecessary argument with my partner. So really understanding that trauma and emotion is something that I need to, to feel and to, to welcome. You know, I drank for 20 years. I started drinking at the age of 12. So by the time I got into recovery, I had the emotional sobriety of a 12-year-old. And that really, like I said at the start, that played out in other areas of my life, including my relationships. So there's been a lot of learning in that. And that was definitely uh, a book that really kicked that off for me. And Dr. Gabor Mate, all of his stuff has just, again, blown my mind. The Myth of Normal, his latest book, I read that uh, at the end of last year and I absolutely loved it. Again, really just understanding. One of the crazy things was, Jeremy, is that when I got to rehab, despite the fact that I'd grown up in an alcoholic home, I did not think that I had experienced any trauma as a child because my understanding of trauma was that it was the big T stuff, right? So, I, you know, I'd, I'd never been sexually assaulted. 
I'd never been really physically harmed. I'd had one partner that wasn't great, but you know, from what I had seen on the movies, on the screens, I was like, oh no, I don't qualify. Like that hasn't happened to me. And then when I got into rehab and I started to understand that just purely growing up in an alcoholic home where one of your primary caregivers wouldn't come home for two or three days, like that's abandonment, that's trauma. All of this stuff that for the first time, it was almost like I was given permission to not be okay. And up until that point at 32 years of age, I didn't think I had any right to cry boo-hoo or to question my upbringing because there was food on the table every night. You know, at one point my dad became very successful and so there was a lot of money. You know, all of this stuff, every single time there was a reason why I told myself, you know, get on with life, Ash. Like it's all okay. You've got nothing to worry about. And it's certainly not about sitting and wallowing in the past. I'm not advocating for that, but to have an understanding and to have a little bit of compassion for that little Ash who did live through a lot of that traumatic experience, that was a real big shift for me. Yeah. I love that kind of the differentiation between capital T trauma and lowercase t trauma and recognizing, you know, we all have things in our childhood and our past that where our needs weren't met and maybe mm. it was abandonment, maybe teasing, you know, when we were kids, all the different ways that we needed to find a way to medicate and to soothe ourselves and that these addictions were born out of that need to, to give ourselves some comfort and some soothing in, because we didn't know how to deal with the pain that we were feeling. So yeah, mm. Gabor Mate, he's such an inspiration, the way he brings that compassionate approach of saying, hey, you know, we're all struggling, you know, and, mm. you know, mm. an, an addict isn't just like this person in a dark alleyway. It's like, we're all dealing with these, these issues. Yeah. 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 And then one more I'll mention, which I mean, I could go on and on, uh, all of Pia Melody's work. I'm an absolute fan of, uh, she's written that? books like Pia Melody. Oh, I haven't heard of so her. She is famous for working at a rehab called The Meadows in Arizona. And The Meadows works on a model of developmental immaturity, which is all about codependency and really understanding how codependency plays into different areas of our life. And that work, which was the basis and the model that of the rehab that I went to in Australia, was paramount for me to understand all of that stuff that we just spoke about, like really going back to the why, what was the pain, what did I experience as a child, what was modeled to me, and how that then flowed into the adult that I grew into and the coping mechanisms that I developed as a way to get by and get through life and then learning how to unlearn a lot of those maladaptive behaviors. So her work is amazing. And then the last one I was going to mention, though, was Nicole LaPera's How to Do the Work. That was, again, one of the books that I read really early on in my recovery. And again, it keeps coming back to trauma for me because I think I had believed for so long that I hadn't had any. And to anybody listening who is thinking the same thing, like I'd really encourage you to go and do some of this reading and to realize, like you said, Jeremy, I truly don't think that you can get to the age of 21 without having experienced some kind of trauma in your life. That's just part of the human condition. Yeah. And it's interesting, you you mentioned 
like not being feeling like you could give yourself that permission to be compassionate like who am i like i haven't had these big traumas in my life and i i do think that's a big stumbling block for a lot of people and particularly men it's very hard mm-hmm. for men to open up to the t word you know trauma mm-hmm. or to even admit that there was some pain um mm-hmm. and so you know for all the guys out there listening like if you if the trauma word is too too fluffy for you or something just you know whatever way you can connect to that compassionate voice of saying hey i had some difficulties in my childhood and these were the coping mechanisms that i had it's like whatever way you can learn how to have a compassionate approach i think that for mm-hmm. me that's the the work of all of these these teachers and understanding trauma it's like it's a way to learn how to be compassionate to yourself mm. um, and i think as well yeah. i think as well another yeah. thing around trauma which can sometimes be particularly difficult for men is this idea of wanting to protect your parents and i know when i've spoken to a lot of men about this wanting to in particular protect your mother and when I, I believed that to identify as having had a traumatic childhood, this was prior to going to rehab, I thought that that was then me saying that my parents had done a really shit job and that they were to blame. And again, that's certainly not what I'm advocating for. There is a big difference between acknowledging facts and allowing yourself the space to have compassion for yourself. And turning around and then saying, you know, everything that is wrong in my life is because my parents weren't good enough. Like, it's not that at all. But whilst we shouldn't be bashing our parents, we also shouldn't be completely denying that it happened. There's a real fine line and a and a place in the middle, which is called reality. And so it's really just yeah. about coming to terms with that. Right. It's not a, it's not a victimhood. Mm. It's not a blame game of pointing the finger. It's just saying, hey, this... This is the ways that I wasn't getting my needs met because mm. no one's perfect and my parents aren't perfect. And yeah. 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 I wanted to ask, you mentioned codependency, and this is a word that comes up all the time in addiction. And I'm wondering if you could define what is codependency? So codependency for me is, well, I think overarching, people think about codependency being when two people are addicted to each other. And Yes, absolutely, it can be that. But how codependency manifests for me is much broader in that I know that I'm struggling with codependency when my self-worth is determined by what you think of me. So when I'm unable to esteem myself from within and I'm searching for external validation, approval, people seeking, then I'm exhibiting codependent traits. And so really for me, it's about stepping into my my truth and my inner knowing and, you know, becoming big girl Ash rather than, you know, the the adolescent Ash or the the little Ash, because both of those, you know, the adolescent Ash is the one that acts out and goes into my better than and doesn't give a shit about the consequences. Then my little Ash is, you know, the one that's really perfectionistic, wanting to do everything perfect, maybe doesn't think very much of myself. Like they're, again, they're all maladaptive behaviors, but when I can like, like bring myself right into the midline of that and be a functional adult, 
that's what I'm seeking. That's what I'm searching for day in and day out. And that's when I know that I'm I'm no longer falling into that trap of codependency. But as somebody who used people-pleasing as a survival mechanism for many, many years, I can find myself falling back into that really quickly. Although it was interesting, I had somebody once point out to me that uh, that people-pleasing is actually just a nice way of saying approval-sucking. <laughs> I loved that because I thought, you know what? That's so true. Like I'm not being honest if I'm people pleasing because I'm I'm adapting my own behaviors and my own truth to to potentially get something out of you even if it's just your approval. What I strive to do now as an adult in recovery is to really own my truth and to even if that means that maybe the person that I'm engaging with isn't going to like what I have to say. But I would rather do that and respect myself and hold my boundaries than what I previously used to do, which was almost be like a chameleon who would shape shift and change, you know, I would change the food I liked, the music I listened to, like, oh my goodness, I'd get into one relationship and I'd be this kind of girl and then I'd be in another relationship and I'd be like, just completely different. And it's like, hang on a minute, where does Ash actually lie in the middle of all of that? Um, so it's been, yeah, it's been quite the journey and that is something that is still being revealed to me to this day. Yeah. I love the, the term, uh, approval sucking. It's such a, a graphic, but very adequate description. It's like, we're sucking approval out of people. And it's like you said, it's not, we're not really trying to please others. We're trying to get their approval and we're exactly being chameleons. And I remember when I was a kid that this highlighted for me how much of a people pleaser I am. I think I was in sixth grade when this happened. or No, maybe it was like eighth grade. And I had this friend, we were hanging out after school. So we were young. I don't know how old we were, 13 or 14. And he turns to me, we're, we're talking and he turns to me and he says, you know, he says, do you like war? Like war, W-A-R, war. And I had this moment, I'm like, uh, yeah, you know, war's pretty cool. Like, I guess, you know, it's like, and he was talking about a band that I had had never heard of. And I was like, yeah, war can be pretty cool. And he's like, oh, no, no, I mean the band. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, war. Totally. And like the way that I would completely, I mean, I didn't have values back then. Like I was 13 years old, so I wasn't really like a man or connected to integrity. But the way that I would so easily slip into just letting go of, of who I was as a way to mm. kind of just feel like I was a part of the, his group or, you know, it's the ways that we can do this approval sucking and the people pleasing mm. is so deeply ingrained, I think. And is that something that you learned to do as a child as a result of not feeling safe or where, like, where did you learn that that was what you needed to do to get by? Yeah. I mean, I think my feeling about it is that it's, it's, deeply ingrained as a part of our physiology and our our survival strategies. If you think about how we evolved as a tribal species and if mm. you were an outcast, if you were on the outside, it meant death. You know, you couldn't survive on your own. And so we wanted to feel safe in the tribe. We wanted to feel yeah. like we belonged. And so it's it's just deeply ingrained in all of us. And it doesn't mean that we then have to allow it. We should just be aware of it that, hey, our existential safety is not at risk if we learn how to disagree. And there's a, a beautiful book in kind of the men's workspace. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Have you heard of this book mm. before? No, I haven't. It's 
it's a little bit edgy. You know, there are parts of the book that are a little, you know, people can kind of say are a little bit controversial, but the idea behind it is really about this people pleasing and the ways that we can try to be Mr. Nice Guy and always wanting everybody to like us, wanting everybody to think we're an upstanding person and never actually standing in our truth and standing up for what we believe in. We just try to say, well, I don't know, what do you want for dinner? We can go wherever mm. you want. As opposed to, you know, like being a man and just not being a man in the like toxic sense, but just saying what you want. And in fact, that's that's actually a really beautiful way to be authentic and say, no, I, I would like to have this for dinner. Would you like to mm -hmm. come with me? You know, mm, um, mm. so it's a it's a really interesting book that um, looks at how this shows up with men, but it's also you know something that shows up with women. You know, the nice Absolutely. woman syndrome. Yeah, and yeah. this is the crazy thing: is people actually, from my experience, people appreciate somebody who can be straightforward. Somebody who can ask for their needs to be met. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Someone might say no, but at least there's no murky waters. Like, everybody's on the same page. And this, you know, and that then just comes down to really simple communication. And yet, we're so not comfortable. I shouldn't say we, but many people are so uncomfortable with just having clear, honest communication because of this fear of rejection. Yeah. Yeah, the fear of rejection. Yeah. So there were a lot of books in there that you talked about. Um, I'm curious to know, you mentioned, and I was listening to one of the podcasts where you talked about kind of the shame and guilt spiral. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about how, how shame plays a role in your life now, how you manage to deal with it in your life. Mm. Mm. Shame is such a killer. And I truly think that shame fueled my addiction for many, many years. Had I not been carrying so much shame, maybe I would have gotten recovery sooner, but I'll never know. But what I do know is that the shame and the secrecy, it was almost like this heavy armor that I was carrying. And the crazy thing is, I put on that armor in the beginning as a way to protect myself from these traumas, from these things that were going on in my life. But the more armor I started to put on, this invisible armor, the more disconnected I became and the more I just sat with that shame. And, you know, Brene Brown talks about it beautifully, this idea that shame thrives in secrecy and I was very secretive about my addiction towards the end. You know, I was drinking daily, I was drinking alone, and I wasn't telling anyone about it. So how does shame play out in my life today? Well, thankfully, it's pretty non-existent. One of the really cool things that has happened to me as a result of getting clean and sober is that I don't really do shitty things anymore. <laughs> my tolerance for discomfort is really low. And what I mean by that is back when I was drinking and I was hung over every day, like my tolerance for discomfort was really high. Like I was constantly hung over, constantly nauseous, constantly feeling like a piece of you know what. And now the reality is I really don't like to feel that way. So what that means is, and this is not to say that I am perfect by any stretch. I get it wrong 
all the time. And I'm so grateful to have an understanding partner who's also in recovery because he gives me the space to be messy and to learn. But what I do, Jeremy, pretty quickly these days is I clean up my stuff. So I keep my side of the street clean. So if I do find that maybe I have acted out in a way that would be previously would be shame inducing, I have the tools now to be able to to deal with that stuff great away. And so like the first thing is always vigorous honesty. The second thing I do, if I, let's, you know, use an example and say I've had an interaction with my partner where I haven't been in line with my values or behaved the way I want to, then I apologize. Like I make amends, you know, I don't let things fester for days. Like I was the queen of the silent treatment back in the day. You know, I would just not talk and just hope that it would go away because I hated confrontation. That doesn't work anymore. Like I have to, I have to get really um, honest. You know, I'm in a program where I have a sponsor who I get to share that stuff with as well. Uh, so I'm always looking at my stuff these days. So the, the sheer fact that I live by a set of values that requires me to maintain vigorous honesty and to clean up my stuff along the way means that shame doesn't really have the space to thrive or survive in my life today. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that I think recovery is such a a powerful, it just teaches you so many life lessons that are valuable for every aspect of your life that, you know, it's like, like honesty and um, making amends and, you know, having difficult conversations and taking care of yourself. It's like, like it was interesting when you said your tolerance for discomfort is lower now because in mm. some ways you could argue it's like when you're in your addiction it's like any amount of discomfort and you run away into your addiction but what you're talking about is like the low tolerance for discomfort you have now it's like the low tolerance for your own self-sabotage like i have no patience for treating myself poorly like if if this is going to make me feel like shit, I'm not going to do it because I don't like feeling exactly. like shit anymore. Yeah, Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, like the idea of lying and honesty is a perfect way to give a bit more depth to this. What I mean by that is back in the day, I I would lie about the smallest things without even noticing. I was so good at lying that I didn't even realize I was lying to myself. And because of that, I stayed on that hamster wheel of addiction for so, so long. But nowadays, I can't even tell a white lie without feeling physically sick. Like sometimes I'll try to and then I'll go, oh, no, 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 no. And I just can't get away with it, you know? And it's, it's awesome because the really cool thing about honesty and living a life of honesty is that I know that I can trust myself now. Like there were, I, I spent years of my life breaking promises on a daily basis, incapable of being able to trust myself. And now today, as a result of living a life where I do esteemable acts and I get to keep building my self-esteem, like I trust myself, I back myself. I not only respect, but I love the woman that looks back at me in the mirror every day. And that is such a far cry from the woman I was four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're really living in alignment with your values and in integrity, it just, it feels better. And when you're not, it feels like, like you say, it feels icky. Like you tell a lie and you're just like, you feel the the ickiness of it. Have you heard yeah. of um, 
the the term the bliss of blamelessness? Oh no, but please tell me because that sounds yeah. delicious. Yeah, I just did a, a podcast episode on it a, a couple episodes ago, but it's I remember hearing about it in in the context of some of these Buddhist retreats I've been on. And in Buddhism, you know, the ethical training precepts are very important. So it's not just meditation, it's also practicing, you know, ethical precepts. And they talk about this concept of the bliss of blamelessness. And it's like when you're really in alignment with living an ethical life, you know, when you're not telling lies, you're not harming people with your sexuality, you're not stealing or or killing you feel this bliss when you're in alignment like it's this this bliss of of knowing you've done nothing wrong and there's a mental clarity and just this feeling of you feel so light and free you can like go out into the world with this freedom when you know that you mm. you haven't done harm to people and the opposite mm. is true like when you know when you're doing bad things to yourself or to other people there's a heaviness like you go out into the world and you feel that kind of fear that shame that heaviness of i'm i'm not i'm harming people i'm uh, you know and there's the fear mm-hmm. of like what if people knew what if people find out you know so that bliss yeah, of blamelessness is real as you describe that like i'm fully there with you in the moment because i've been on both sides of the coin and i really do remember like that feeling of waking up every morning thinking, what have I done? Who have I texted or called last night? Like, who saw me? All of that stuff ruminating through my mind, and I haven't even put my feet on the floor yet, to the life that I get to live today where, hand on heart, I can walk down the street in any city in the world with my head held high because I know that there's no one else left on this earth that I have harmed. Like, I've, I've made my amends. I've cleaned up my side of the street. And I'm really proud of the person I am today. Like that word freedom that you used is such a perfect way to describe that. And then another thing about blame, which is something that I actually talk a lot with my clients about, is this idea of really understanding wholeheartedly that we cannot control people, places, or things. This is, again, something that I was taught really early on in my recovery. And when I'm blaming someone else, like that is an attempt to in a way, control the narrative. And like, I'm never going to feel good about that because whether they accept the blame or not, like it, you don't feel good when you're blaming someone, when you can instead, and the, and, the, and the opposite to that or the solution to that is not for them to just suddenly do what you want them to do. It's to allow them to do whatever they need to do and you are okay. At the end of the day, no matter what anyone else is doing, like I cannot control anything that's outside my hula hoop. And I am so okay with that today. But coming from somebody who used to control and manage and manipulate every area of my life and everyone else's life that was in my sphere, like it is so counterintuitive. But again, it's where the freedom lives in that space. Yeah. I was just talking with a, a client of mine last night about this topic of, um, have you heard of the eight worldly wins? Have you ever heard that phrase? No, it's a, it's another, what is that? Well, it's another phrase, like a teaching from from Buddhism. So for me, I'm, I'm really big into Buddhism. It was a big part of my recovery journey. Beautiful. Um, and the eight worldly wins, it's just this teaching that there are these eight things that happen in life to everyone. And there are four pairs of things. So there's, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, 
praise and blame and fame and disrepute. And it's like these four mm. pairs of opposites that just happen to everyone. They're just the winds that pass through all of our lives. So sometimes you feel pleasure, sometimes you feel pain. Mm. Sometimes people praise you and sometimes people blame you. Sometimes you gain things, sometimes you lose things. And it's like you can't control the winds, right? It's like these things are out of your control and they happen to mm. everyone. Mm. And that real peace and real freedom is when you don't try to stop the winds from happening, but you fix your relationship to those things. Mm. Like when somebody praises you, you don't grasp onto it and say, ah, oh, this feels so good. I need more of this. I need and more. Somebody blames yes. You. Right. <laughs> and then if somebody blames you, you just say, oh, OK, like I can't control whether or not somebody's going to blame me. It's out of my control. And like mm. you said, all you can control is what's within your hula hoop. Right. And it's like your integrity your ethical behaviors, your intentions and your actions, your speech, those are the things you can control. And I love mm. that you said like you walk down the street and you can hold your head high. It's like, I think that's what so many people, I know listening to this podcast, it's like so many of the men listening to this just want to live with integrity and walk mm. down the street knowing that they have nothing to hide. There's nothing to mm. be ashamed of. And that's such a good feeling to get to that place. Yeah, like I didn't believe it when I was still drinking and using, but like it's better than any high you'll ever get from an addictive substance or a process or a behavior. Yeah, because it, it's, and this is the difference, it's like highs, drugs, whatever, they, they give you a temporary moment of pleasure, but then it fades away, right? Mm. But the bliss of blamelessness, it's like it's an it's a lasting fulfillment. It's a lasting happiness mm -hmm. that stays with you long term. It's a deep. I remember one of the things, like the metaphors that really touched me early on in my recovery was from this monk, Mathieu Ricard, who wrote the book Happiness. And he talked about how, like, you know, there's the waves on, on the surface of the ocean, and sometimes they're choppy and sometimes they're peaceful. And it's just kind of like it's erratic. Like sometimes it's crazy and sometimes it's peaceful. But if you go to the depths of the ocean, it's like it's always calm and still and peaceful. And it's mm. like what we want to get to is that place at the depth where we know that even when the surface is kind of choppy, like at the depths, we're still peaceful and, and integrated. Mm, that's beautiful. So I want to, we're kind of coming close to time. And I, I wanted to just make sure that I ask you about some of the important practices that you have. Like what are the things that keep you in your recovery, that keep you going strong? Hmm. So as I mentioned, uh, at one year into my recovery, I knew that I wanted to make some changes in my life. And so I started leaning into like where my soul was telling me to go. Like rather than thinking about where I needed to go, I was like, what, where am I actually being pulled? And I had dabbled with yoga and meditation for a few years prior to that. But the problem when you're trying to do these spiritual practices and you're consuming spirits every day is, again, there's a disconnect, there's a block. And so what was really cool was when I removed the spirits from the bottle out of my life, I was able to tap into the spirit within and the spirits that are around me, which I had no consciousness, no awareness of at all. So that led me to go and do my teacher training for yoga and meditation. And that was just such a game changer for me as I started to dive into this real journey of self-discovery 
And so what that looks like for me today is I meditate every single day. It is such an important way for me to start my day for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, as I mentioned to you, you know, I used to wake up with this guilt, shame and remorse spiraling and my head would be really noisy. I have to be really honest, just because I'm sober now doesn't mean that my head isn't noisy. (laughs) And so I still wake up with a busy mind. It's just not full of guilt, shame and remorse, but it will still be full of stuff. And often it's stuff around how I need to manage and control my life. So by starting my day off with meditation, what it does is it creates that space between me and the rest of the world. And it allows me just to really connect in with myself. And once again, be led by my intuition and my heart rather than my head. It also enables me to really practice the pause, which is something that I can then carry into the rest of my day. You know, that beautiful space between a response and a reaction. Like I can only find that in the pause and I can only practice the pause when I'm training my mind to do so. And that's what I get. That's the gift that meditation gives me is this ability to create space, to create stillness of the mind. So I start that every morning and that can look really different day to day, Jeremy. Some days I will sit there for 20 minutes in silence with my mantra and it will be a beautiful, blissful experience. The reality, what most days look like, is I get I have a space in my living room where I've got this beautiful meditation chair and I've got my crystals. I light a stick of incense. I put on a guided meditation for 10 minutes. I, I, I get it done. <laughs> then I always pray after that. I talk to my higher power. I hand it over. I ask for guidance. I ask to be shown how I can best be of service to give back to the world. Uh, And then I write a gratitude list. And this is a practice that has been fundamental in rewiring my neural pathways to see the good in life. I was never a super negative person, I'll be honest. I think I've always been a naturally positive person. But in writing gratitudes, I really appreciate the little things. So when I sit down to write my gratitude list, it's not about the big shiny gold star medal moments. It's really the little things in life. It's having a warm bed to sleep in. It's my little dog, Frank. It's herbal tea in the morning, like just those little things that when I'm busy and when I'm, again, back in control running the show, like I forget to notice those things. So that just brings me back to a place of contentedness. It's that peace and that serenity that I strive for today. You know, I used to think that I wanted this big, grandiose life. And it's not to say that I don't like nice things, but I really find peace in in the stillness now, in, in those moments. So that's how I set up every single day. Moving my body is also really important for me. I've never been a super sporty person, but I've found that in recovery, I've really developed this newfound respect for my physical health. And I'm so mindful of the direct impact that has on my mental health. So I walk my little dog every day. If I'm not teaching a yoga class, I'm trying to get to a yoga class. Pilates as well is something that I really, really love. So just things that they create discipline, they create structure, but it's also always working back towards moving me in the direction of the person I want to be and creating a really healthy mind, which, like I said, you know, back when I was drinking and drugging and 
living this really sort of fast-paced, chaotic life. Like I didn't care about any of that stuff. I, I, you mentioned meditation to me and I'd be like, ugh, boring, who's got the time? Whereas I now truly, deeply understand the benefits. And it's so funny, if I don't do those things for a couple of days, for whatever reason, like I really start to notice it quite quickly. So I'm so grateful that I have these tools and these practices that I can go back to now that really set me up for the day and that keep me in that pocket, that sweet spot of my recovery. Yeah, that's beautiful. I was getting the the image, like a metaphor of when you're in addiction, like you're chasing that high so much. It's it's like you're like a like a bull or like a rhino that's chasing after this one thing and you're just like crashing into everything and like stomping on all these flowers. That, like you're just creating a mess and you're ignoring all this beauty around you. And letting go of addictions, like letting go of that chase and starting to like pay attention to all the beauty and the little things. Um, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. If you were to give some some like last words to anyone listening to this, and again, most of the listeners of the show are, are men dealing with porn addiction. Mm. Are there any final words of wisdom you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely, Jeremy. It's pretty simple, and that is just to talk to someone to not try and recover alone. No matter what type of addiction you are looking to recover from, recovery is a we-based thing, in my opinion. We recover together. And particularly with something like porn addiction, where it's shrouded in secrecy due to the levels of shame that are associated with it, it's not a conducive space for open conversation. And the only way we're going to change that is by having the conversation. So I'm not necessarily saying that you need to be open about this with everybody you meet, but just finding one or two people that you really, really trust, reaching out to someone like yourself, Jeremy, who's got lived experience. Like it's so powerful. Instagram, social media is such an amazing place to find people who have similar stories or have similar experiences and maybe are a little further down the path than you, reach out to those people. I can guarantee you that this recovery community is so supportive and so open that you will find someone you can talk to and they can give you the guidance around what they did. Because really, this has been like one of the number one key things that I've done is I've taken advice from people who are further down the line than me. I don't listen to people who haven't got lived experience around this stuff because they don't know. Like you can read all the books in the world, but if you haven't lived this life, you don't necessarily, I believe, have the framework of success. But people who are living free from their addiction, like find out what they're doing and then go and do that because that is the key to success. Beautiful. Really well said. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a wonderful little interview. So much wisdom in there and so much helpful uh, insights and advice for the people to take away. Uh, where should people look for you if they want to connect and, and reach out? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. I've had such a great time chatting with you today. So if people want to connect with me, I'm super active on social media. You can head over to Instagram at Ash Butters. There's two S's on my name. I've got my website, ashbutters.com. You can head over there and I've got some free meditations that you can jump onto, which are really cool. They're guided meditations. If that's something that you 
are just dipping your toe into and you want some freebies, you can head over there. And then, of course, there's my podcast, Behind the Smile, which you can listen to on all great streaming services or go watch it on YouTube. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast and thanks everyone for who's listening. It's been a pleasure and we'll catch you guys on the next episode.